0: Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Azure. This episode is sponsored by Solvetto. Solvetto is an official Microsoft learning partner. They make continuous learning a lifestyle for IT professionals. Get started with high quality and curated online Azure trainings that have measurable impact. Act now by going to solvetofi slash pro. What's up, Jussi? Hey, Toby,
1: I realize now that I am back with in-person events and meetings not every day and full day, but almost every week for for the coming months, I I think I have one or more in-person events. And what's been interesting is that it's really hard to find the time to travel now. Because back in the day, three, four, five years ago, you would just check the calendar and and book yourself for travel mode for two days. But now there's meetings, there's daycare stuff, there's, there's school stuff with the boys. And you really have to sort of squeeze in the in-person events, which I do enjoy quite a bit. But it's it's funny how tricky it has become to actually do the travel.
0: Yeah, yeah, agreed. So on my side, I've started to kind of settle into my new role at Microsoft as an architecture content lead. So that's been a great journey. And um, and one thing that I will do coming up is that it's likely that I will attend the ESPC conference in Copenhagen. That happens in November. So perhaps I'll see some of you there. I will mostly probably move around and network and spend time catching up with old friends and new friends, make acquaintances. Um, Not really there for the sessions, but just to network. So to tie into your kind of thinking there about finding the time to travel, Copenhagen is 20 minutes away from where I live. So that's also like the main reason I would be going there. Otherwise, I don't really have a need uh, or a requirement to go to the conferences. So I'm I'm really hoping that this will be my first in-person conference, I think now in three years or four or five years even. So it's been a long time for me since I attended one of the actual in-person conferences. So I'm very excited about doing that. Um, so hopefully I'll see you there.
1: Sounds good. I will be in Copenhagen as well for ESPC. I think it's late November to early December and, and that roughly marks three years of this podcast so perhaps we finally get to meet in person after years and years of thinking of recording something in person but let's just do wine and not do any recording
0: yeah that's a great idea maybe we can bring some swag so if you're a a trusted listener to the podcast just swing by wherever we are and we might have some some swag for you but if not we always appreciate feedback around the podcast find us and say hi
1: Sounds good. So today we are talking about developing in the cloud with Microsoft DevBox, which is a public preview service. It was announced in mid-August 2022. So, so Toby, do you use this preview feature?
0: I do not, and there's multiple reasons for that. Uh, one is, I well, we don't use it in our team, so it's out of my control to, to decide what kind of, you know, infrastructure we use for for these things but um what we do in our teams is we just get a laptop and then you install everything bare metal on the laptop um but i did see this announcement and i do find it very intriguing and i know you took it for a spin so i think you have some insights here i have some thoughts around like the use cases and and things like that but um, from my side i'm not using it have you been using it I've been using it a little bit.
1: And what it is before we actually get to how do you deploy this, how much it's going to cost you, and how it compares to all the other services that are sort of similar. Uh, what it is, it's a managed service providing developers a high performance and secure development workstation or workstations in Azure. That's it. That is the episode. Thank you. So let's talk a bit about what you could use this for. So as the name implies, Microsoft Dev Box, it's for developers. It's a virtual machine built on top of Azure Virtual Desktop. And the idea is that a developer might need multiple different dev boxes as opposed to installing everything locally or having some sort of an on-premises Hyper-V Cluster thingy to host your VMs. And as I said, it's a managed service. And this ties into Azure AD, authentication, authorization, Intune Management, all the things you typically get with a VDI a virtual desktop infrastructure in the cloud. Um, and yeah, that's that's basically it. It's it's fairly simple for now and it's in preview, and I'm quite sure there will be more capabilities. Toby, have I sold you on the opportunity to ditch your Surface device and just go for them, folks?
0: So, so I can just use my my tablet and, and connect remotely to a, a machine. I mean, there are benefits to that. And I mean, from where I'm sitting, yeah, sure. It's pretty much like spinning up a VM and, and have everything there. So you get the power of the cloud, but you can use a thin client if you want to call them that like a tablet, like a whatever device, laptop you have, and you don't have to use the compute and, and resources on that machine, which is pretty good. You only need a, a fairly reliable internet connection, um, good and stable connection to it. Um, but my immediate thought here, I mean, I, I have a couple of use cases I, I come to think about, but my immediate thought here is, you mentioned it builds on top of the Azure Virtual Desktop, and that was gonna be kind of my question here. How does it compare to some of the other things I know we've talked about, like, you have Windows 365, you have Azure Virtual Desktop, you have GitHub Code Spaces, and all of these things offer you machines in the cloud, like a, an operating system in the cloud or, or code environment in the cloud or this virtual desktop thing in the cloud. How does DevBox fit into that picture? Is that like sitting next to those options or is it sitting on top or under one of those options? Or like, how does it compare to to the already available options? So to turn the question in on in a different angle, why should I not just get Windows 365 and install Visual Studio and you know use GitHub Code Spaces? Or you know, what's the benefit of this thing? That's a that's
1: a good question. And for Windows 365, that's a software as a service service. Uh, and I feel that the target audience for Windows 365 is information workers. So people who typically use Outlook and PowerPoint and Excel and do fancy stuff in Office apps. As opposed to DevBox being more around, let me install whatever I like, let me configure it, let me get a little bit more compute power, and perhaps I need multiple of these. One for this project, one for another, perhaps I want to do a snapshot on that one. So there's a little bit more control on DevBox. For Windows 365, that has a fixed pricing per user per month, and it has some limitations. So I feel Windows 365, it's optimal for somebody who just needs a typical workstation in the cloud that just works. And DevBox, I feel, is more about a bare-bones VM, which is managed, but it gives more freedom for the developer. But having said this, I feel there's less difference in spinning up a VM in Azure and just granting a secure access for the developer. But the DevBox control gives you the capability of having a little bit more governance and management capabilities on top of that. So Windows 365 and Microsoft DevBox, they both build on top of Azure Virtual Desktop infrastructure. and GitHub Codespaces, I've tried that a couple of times. And I feel the idea with key GitHub Code Spaces is that you have Visual Studio code in your browser and you get the compute capacity to run and compile your code. And that also works on the desktop, but you don't really RDP or SSH to a box to do anything. You just get the utility that runs on a compute. Does this yeah, make yeah. it any, any, any clear?
0: Yeah, I think the comparison here is good, and and to clarify there with GitHub Code Spaces, I I think if it works the way I, assume it works, uh, at least that's the uh, the Visual Studio Code Spaces work that way that you could use Visual Studio Code to connect to the Code Space. You can use your locally installed Visual Studio Code, and you can connect to the virtual code space or to the GitHub code space that lives in the cloud. So you use the compute and processing power of the cloud, but you can use your own client kind of the same way that you would connect to a, uh, to a virtual machine and, and use the, the cloud compute or um, whatever. But yeah, I, th- I think this distinction makes it a bit more clear. Um, it's, it's good for me if I'm a developer, I need to tinker with things. I, I need a bit more control of the actual device. And I assume there's a way here to create images and like set up a, a kind of baseline type of machine. So imagine I'm onboarding five new developers uh, in the coming month. I want all of them to have the same tools, the same utilities, the same repositories, maybe um, like access to the same things. And I I guess if it works the way I think it works, there is a way to manage images or set up like a, a pool of machines or something like this. Do you know that? Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: it's a little bit more limited in that sense. And let's talk about the deployment in a bit, but you can definitely create a definition of a dev box and it's based on a readily made image for you. At least in the public preview, I did not find a capability of bringing my own custom image to be used in the definition. Um. For for something like this, we did talk about Azure DevTest Labs back in episode forty, which was about two years ago. And the idea with this was of course for doing testing and development. And that had a neat little capability of injecting custom software when you would provision a box. So if you needed Notepad Plus Plus and Visual Studio Code, you would add those as a sort of an add-on for those boxes but that was a fairly lightweight approach. I feel with DevBox, if you need anything on top of the image, you would probably utilize the Intune and deploy the packages or uh, what you feel the developers would need, or perhaps just use a WinGet script as a login script or something that when you spin it up, it would automatically install whatever you need. For, for the use cases, uh, I've been thinking long and hard on when would I personally need to use a Microsoft DevBox? I've only found one use case for myself. Let's talk about that in a second. But can you think of any, any use cases why you would want to use a DevBox as opposed to using your corporate device that you typically use?
0: I, I think I can think of a few reasons where this could be applicable. and for big organizations or teams where you want to secure the devices, you may have Intune already, maybe you enforce the firewall and password policies and all that stuff on the machines, uh, but you might, maybe it's a sensitive project, maybe there's some sensitive uh, data in that project and you don't want that to float around on on the uh, devices that you have uh, physically spread out across the globe then maybe putting them in, in a machine like that makes sense i've seen that happen a lot with vms in the past where organizations said we use just-in-time access and privileged access management and vms and you know all the kind of pre in this case and then pre-built images and the access to the data and, and everything happens from those machines exclusively nothing can be downloaded to your own machine or, or should not be downloaded to your own machine. So for like compliance and, and legal reasons and security reasons, I can see that. But I can also see it from uh, separation of projects. If you work on big, complicated things where you don't want to kind of taint your own ma- machine or device with Maybe you need to have a a local SQL server. Maybe you have to have something else. I don't know what it could be uh, in in, modern day development, but maybe there's a requirement on installing tools you may or may not want to have on your own machine. Um, Then it might also make sense to to have a a machine in the cloud for that. Um, But again, to leverage whatever you have. So from a sustainability perspective, I'm also thinking if you have older devices, Uh, instead of throwing them away because they're not good enough, you can keep using them so you can really benefit from the hardware efficiency in the kind of green principles of the Green Software Foundation, which states pretty much that you already have uh, the embodied carbon that goes into the hardware. It's already been produced, so we already wasted a bunch of carbon. Instead of throwing that away and buying a new device to fit the need, you have the device, you can spin up uh, a machine in the Cloud which when i looked at the the research from microsoft recently for sustainability it says that by migrating from on-prem data centers to the cloud you can save up to 98% on carbon emissions so the same is is true maybe not exact the same numbers but the same kind of concept is true for reusing hardware that you already have instead of buying new hardware and connecting to something that is optimized or even highly optimized in the cloud um you know to to really think about the climate and and how to make the world a better place so i mean there's the hard requirements like security and like uh, separation of concerns between projects um maybe the other thing is like the softer thing like sustainability how do you how do you use or reuse the, the thing you already have and and i think that's a good um good way to uh, to leverage that as well
1: yeah I, I really like these ideas. and it's not too many years ago that I would visit different customers, go to a meeting with with the developers and architects. And you would have a random number of people showing up to the meeting room lugging these really heavy looking laptops. You know, you know the ones that that look like a gaming PC. Mm-hmm. And the power adapter is, is like almost like a physical brick. It was so big and heavy. The size of a keyboard, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and they would say, yeah, I really need this because I need 32 gigs of RAM and I need this and that. And I need to run 15 VMs just to get my things running. I occasionally still see this sort of behavior. And, and I am I don't mean to say that it's wrong or you shouldn't be doing it. There might be viable use cases for that. But I'm also more and more saying that a lot of the development and a lot of the services, they now run in the Cloud, in Azure, in Power Platform, in Dynamics 365, and so on. So you need less performance on the physical device, and you can offload a lot of the things to the Cloud, and I, I feel DevBox fits in here for those specific use cases. Another aspect that I feel I would be using something like DevBox more, is that I might be tinkering on a tool that I need for myself. That's often the type of development I, I get to do, because I'm unsupervised during the day and my colleagues do not let me run my code in production. So often the things that I, that I need to tweak are are something fairly esoteric. So there might be a C++ class that I sort of need to tweak and get it running here and there. And That leads me into installing all sorts of weird things on my dev environment, just to get the thing to build without errors. I don't mind about warnings, but the errors, they are sort of a blocker for me. And For that, it would be nice to have a dev box that I can discard at the end of the day, without needing to figure, well, I did install a lot of the things on my main laptop. I'm not sure what I'm running anymore, because I just pulled a lot of things, to get this thing working, and security, of course, because now I can allocate a dev box to a developer, and at the end of the project, I can just deallocate that one, and I can be certain that the developer does not have access to anything anymore, since the access to the corporate systems was enabled from the dev box, not from that developer's laptop or workstation at his or her home office.
0: Yeah, makes sense. So how do you go about deploying this? Do you just click a button and say, hey, spin me up something here, or like what's the process to get started with this? So I did spend one evening last
1: week and I figured this can take take me more than 90 seconds to get this up and running. I'll, I'll just go to Azure portal, I search for DevBox, click new, and I'm done. Yeah, it doesn't really work like that. Uh, in reality, to get this up and running, you have to do the IT Pro things. You need to provision a virtual network that will be the network where the dev boxes will be will be joined to but then you need to create a network connection component that connects the dev box to a region and also to the vnets then you need a dev center and within the dev center you create a dev box definition which is the SKU on what sort of a compute image you like Windows 10 or 11 support it with or without Microsoft 365 apps. And also you allocate how many CPU cores, how much RAM and and what sort of an SSD do you want. And finally, you create a dev project that connects the dev box definition and the dev box pool to the project, which connects to the dev center, which connects to the network connection component, which connects to the virtual Mm -hmm. network. You don't need... The DevBox blade in Azure portal adds all. Everything happens outside of that, and then once all of this is done, the developers will access to devbox.microsoft.com and they sign in with their Azure AD credentials using a browser to spin up their DevBoxes when they need them.
0: Okay, yeah, very nice. So after setting that kind of core infrastructure up, then in Azure. Uh, it sounds like it's a pretty uh, pretty low effort to get started just devbox.microsoft.com and and off you go and then you can sign in with whatever device you have available i suppose
1: yep that's exactly how it works and and once i had done the the it configuration side the the vnets and dev centers and everything else i used my same account i i opened devbox.microsoft.com on on my laptop and it gives me the devbox i can start that the experience is exactly the same as with windows 365 except the colors are a little bit different and it it reboots in a couple of minutes and then you can connect with remote desktop the the regular client or if you are on a tablet then you need to have the remote desktop connect app on it so what i did try yesterday i was sitting in a train heading home from a customer meeting uh, I had my Samsung Galaxy Tab S7 Plus with me. Toby, I think you have the same model, right?
0: Yeah, I think we, uh, we have the same uh, the same tab or tablet. I use mine exclusively when I'm riding my bike, my virtual uh, virtual bike system. Um, but I, I did try it for spinning up a VM or accessing a VM that I spun up as well, and, and that worked surprisingly well because with this particular tablet, you can use something called desktop mode. So I plugged it in, USB-C, I plugged it into my, um, the, the power docking station that I have, which is then connected to both mouse peripherals, keyboard, mouse, and monitor. So using the tablet, I could get full desktop setup working. And from there, our remote desktop into a, a VM. So that was like the full experience, but from uh, just a tablet. So I expect, This is kind of the same deal then with DevOps.
1: Yeah, and you raise an interesting angle here because what I haven't tried, but what I will try once we're done with the recording is I will use my Samsung Android phone, plug that in with USB-C to my desktop PC, but it could just be be a a display and, and a docking station without the actual PC and enable the sort of desktop mode that Android has. I failed to recall the exact name that Samsung is using for that. And then what I should be able to use, I should be able to use the built-in browser, go to DevBox.Microsoft.com, Microsoft.com, connect through remote desktop connect tool and have the DevBox running physically through my phone, but on a big display, external keyboard and a real mouse. And that would be a Windows 11. Uh, with the Microsoft 365 apps. I can get four cores or eight cores, 16 or 32 gigs of RAM and up to one terabyte of SSD. So it's a fairly beefy machine in that sense. Uh, So back to the situation, I was sitting in the train, I had my uh, wireless Microsoft foldable keyboard that I purchased five years ago, I never really used that except with the galaxy tab s7 plus I, I think the the tab has dimensions is it 12 inch
0: display on on the tablet that we have i don't know but it, it's slightly larger than the the average normal tablet
1: yeah it's it's quite nice it's it's not massive but it's nice so what i did do i went to devboxmicrosoft.com i signed in with my azure AD Accounts, I click on the dev box, it opens remote desktop connect tool and it connects and I could actually work on stuff. The train Wi-Fi that I was using, it's it's okay, but it's it's not optimal in the sense. The downside though, and and this this is a bit problematic, is that there is no way to go passwordless here. And when I say passwordless, what I mean is the Azure AD capability of not prompting me for a password. Ideally, I would like to use uh, Microsoft Authenticator uh, to just log in. But when you connect, for example, on Android, when you connect to the DevBox, it will prompt you for an email and a password, mm. and it will skip MFA all together because you did do MFA, perhaps with passwordless when you initially accessed the devbox.microsoft.com. But once you've done that for the first time, there is no reason for you to go back to that portal anymore. You just open the remote desktop connect app on your Android tablet and you click connect. And again, it's prompting you for the password that you might never ever use elsewhere. All right. Uh, and um nice gentleman called Marcus Lintuala, he pointed out on Twitter on a similar problem that he spotted an upcoming capability coming to Azure Virtual Desktop. It's in private preview now, that would allow for web authentication to go through RDP. I think the limitation is in here. I'll put the link to that tweet and to that doc in the show notes if you're interested in knowing more about this.
0: All right. Makes sense. Um so I, I think we've touched on most of the like what is this what is dev box why would you want to use it or why rather why do you want to take a look at it because i, I think it's still a preview uh, and there's still room for improvements and changes so there's probably a lot of, of things uh, that's going to change as we go and um, so if it does sound interesting you know just dive in take a look at it um but what i Need to figure out here is if i'm gonna spin this up because now i'm thinking yeah maybe inside the main building in the house i don't usually bring my laptop in there but it would be nice to use my tablet to connect to a machine where i could get some things done like access the podcast raw material access my blog and maybe write some draft blog posts and i don't want to bring my laptop or my work laptop or anything like that in because that usually comes with a lot of distractions Suggest so spinning up the the tablet and connecting to a machine that has nothing on it except for that one use case, like writing blocks or whatever it is that I want to do in my spare time, um, yeah, it might be a, a good idea to try it out. But to do that, I need to understand the pricing. Is that something you looked into? I did.
1: And for Windows 365, the pricing is a monthly fee, like in typical SaaS services. For DevBox, because it's more Azure-based, you pay per hour. So how the pricing goes, you pay for the compute capacity, an hourly fee, plus you pay for storage, an hourly fee, which is a bit, I'd say a bit odd, because typically when you allocate storage, are you paying for those hours that you actually access the storage, or are you paying when it's at rest and perhaps the dev box is shut down? I'm not entirely sure, but for the cheapest option, Four virtual CPUs, 16 gigs of RAM, the price is 1.06 Euro per hour. So about the $1 per hour. And storage on top of this is about 5 cents per hour for the 256 gig SSD. So if you work eight hours a day for a month, so about 150 hours, it comes up to €167.5 for the fee. It definitely is not cheap because Windows 365, the cheapest one is about €45. But there's limitations on how many hours you can actually utilize that per month. So to me, I feel that the price point is set so that ideally you would use this on a Monday, then you would shut it down and come back next Monday and maybe work two more hours then I don't really mind if it's one euro or two euro an hour. But if I use this for eight hours a day and really do my work in here, I feel it's it's on the upper side in terms of cost.
0: Yeah, and and I think that's that's a good point. Um, but I, I like this capability that you can switch it off and, and kind of deallocate, like when you deallocate a VM or shut that down and, and don't pay when it's not being used or you don't utilize to compute. Um, I think that that that's a good thing because you can plan the work, you can plan the pricing, you can plan the cost around this, so you can really be have a, a hands-on, tangible budget created around this as well. Because you know, on average, we have this many developers that need access to to a dev box, and and on average, these are the things we're going to work on, and on average, this is the the amount of hours per day that we get things done. So you should be able to calculate it and maybe that's also a good point that you may or may not use it it's perhaps not a replacement for what you have like you, you have your bare bone uh, laptop installed with a bunch of dev tools maybe you have that still but maybe you have a dev box for a specific project like for, for project 5 and in this project 5 you might be collaborating with a bunch of people you it might have a limited time span and for that you need these essential tools maybe this is time boxed to two months or whatever you go in you get the work done when it's done you wipe the the machine so there might also be the use cases of like time limited or time boxed or time budgeted kind of projects where it makes sense to have a separate installation or separate machines spun up in the cloud where you either get you know the the additional power that you may not have on your laptop or just to separate it for security reasons or just because you want to install tools that you generally don't want to have installed on your on your laptop. Um, it could also be that you're running something on the dev machine that needs to continuously run for several days for testing purposes or you know wh- whatever the the idea for that is. Uh, I've seen that in the past when you have uh, when you're developing local kind of webhooks in a, a closed circuit system where nothing could go outside of the box or outside to the internet, if you will. And then they had to keep everything on on one VM, but it had to to stay online for at least three weeks or whatever to get like a baseline of data and to measure how the system acts and works. So I guess there are several use cases for where this could be beneficial on a project to project basis as well, not just, hey, let's replace all the developers' machines and, and make them use this, but instead, use whatever you have today in your company and use this as a compliment to say, all right, for this new project, we're gonna use DevBox because it comes loaded with these things and we can just shut them off when we're not using them.
1: Agreed. And one small upside here with DevBox is that you can grant your developers access to the DevBox portal so that they can start or stop the DevBox instance, but they cannot do anything else they cannot tweak any of the network settings. They cannot sort of manage the compute capacity. And that's the opposite that if you spin up a regular VM and you grant contributor access to the developer, they can tweak a lot of the things for the VM that ideally they really shouldn't be doing. So so in that sense, I, I feel DevBox is, is abstracting a lot of the things that you shouldn't need to worry about and really giving you the real, raw experience. And perhaps that justifies the cost a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, cool. All righty. The last thing, the unexpected question. Uh, this week, Toby, it is my turn to ask you, are you ready? Let's go. If you could outsource any task or thing in your life, which would it be? And please do not say the podcast.
0: So this is the easiest question ever. Uh, Emptying the dishwasher. I dislike it with a passion. I could easily pay for someone to do that for me. Uh, It might be a mental block perhaps, but wow, that's boring. Secondly, ironing and folding laundry. I do not dislike it with the same passion, but it's also a good option uh, for this answer. So in short, I would say I would outsource household tasks. Uh, which would then include emptying the dishwasher, ironing and folding laundry. Everything else is fine uh, in my life, but these two things, especially emptying the dishwasher, mental block. I I'm not doing it. It's and I'm getting a lot of heat at home for not doing it. I can take all the dirty dishes and all the grease and everything that's you know not very fun to. Uh, to grab from the sink, I have no problem grabbing that and smashing it into the dishwasher because I like organizing the dishwasher in a very certain way to optimize it so I can cram as much as possible, but still allowing the water to efficiently flow through all the, you know, all the areas, everything gets really clean. Um, So maybe some OCD on on dishwasher uh, organization, but very mental block about emptying it. I, I, When I notice it's done and I have dishes in the sink that needs to go in, I don't I don't deal with it. I just look at it and then I make a cup of tea and I move on with my life. And, and I think, well, someone else is going to deal with that. And someone else usually does deal with it. And then I get to take the heat at home and I have to do a bunch of other things as a punishment for not actually emptying the dishwasher. So I'm shooting myself in the foot uh, in, in that sense. But I do dislike it with a passion. And for the life of me, I cannot see myself emptying the dishwasher anytime in my life for the rest of my life.
1: <laughs> I I can tell that, that you've given this some, some serious thought. I bet you're one of those people that when you when you turn on the dishwasher that you put a GoPro camera in it so that you can record what happens in there <laughs> and, and later do a surveillance and monitoring exercise to figure out, did, did all of the dishes really clean or should I reorganize
0: my yeah. approach? It's, is this the optimal water flow if I stack it this way? And <laughs> What happens if I move the, the pans and the saucepan and this thing here and, and I put this thing on top? And yeah, I know uh, we don't go to that extent, but yeah, there's your answer.
1: All Good stuff. Thank you for joining us. Uh, let's hear more next week. All right. See you then.